Christmas, listeners, and welcome to this festive episode of Pop Screen, the Geek Show podcast that deals with the good, the bad, and the festive of movies either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a film critic for the Geek Show and a filmmaker. I also write for Horrified.com, the British horror website, and I can be found on Letterboxd at Graham Williamson. This week I've been joined by Mick. I'm the resident old bloke. Uh, yeah, so, so <laughs> that it took you a second to think of your own name there. It which did. It did. Comes to us but, all in the end, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, what you've got to remember, Graham, is that mm. I'm old enough to remember this film coming out. You're old enough to remember Slade as Kindling. <laughs> Not quite that old. <laughs> Can't stand cheeky kids. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm going to. I, I'm hoping that you've managed to get hold of a representative from the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, because this is my ones? bid for a, a Guinness Book of World Records right entry. In being the longest gap between seeing a film and listening to its soundtrack in isolation from said film. It's it's a niche one. I'll it give is. you that, which gives you a good chance of actually getting the record. And it doesn't it doesn't harm anybody. <laughs> no. No one gets hurt because they've they've started clamping down, haven't they, on the ones where you could sort of seriously injure yourself. Right, right. You know, like eating. Yeah. Eating the most number of dried cream crackers while setting your nuts on fire—that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Um, so, which is bad news for me, obviously, because I've been training all year. I know, I know. Did the did did the hospital get to clear all that scaring up? By the way, <laughs> I think you'd be lucky to get into a hospital these days. <laughs> would you? Would you be lucky? Well, no. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, so I first heard this album. We should say what film we're doing first, I guess. We should, yes, yes. Uh, because not since the Beatles had a band meeting and decided that their self-titled album should have a really, really minimal sleeve has the title of a rock-related work been misquoted as constantly as this week's film. It's Slade in Flame. Except it's not, is it? It's Flame. Well... The correct answer is yes. I'm going to just break through. That is the name of the film. Oh, okay. But it wouldn't be Flame if it wasn't Slade. Yes, absolutely. The two are indistinguishable. Slade in Flame is a better title. It's, it is. it's happened by accident, but it is a better title. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I first heard the soundtrack album for this. Mm -hmm. Probably... The year of release. Right, okay. And I watched the film today. <laughs> <laughs> A gap of some 47 years. Wow. So what, what was it that made you decide not to follow it up? Because it's a good soundtrack. I don't think anyone would deny that. It, it's a cracking soundtrack. And 
you know some of my musical heritage, right? Of course, yeah. And share some of it. Yeah. The Smiths and, and the like. Um, but the first two albums I ever heard in the pop slash rock genre yeah. were Sladeist, a compilation album from 1973, featuring some of uh, Slade's bigger hits, but not the Christmas ones. hits and more. Yeah, including the badly spelled Squeeze Me, Please Me. Uh, uh, did it which have Mama, We Are All Crazy Now? That's right. Goodbye, D Jane, the Yorkshire mm. hit. Yes. Um, <laughs> One Way Hotel, which is a dark and grim song. Yeah. It has to be said. It makes it makes the Eagles Hotel California sound like a jaunty away trip to a Premier Inn. <laughs> um, in, in fairness, a jaunty away trip to a Premier Inn sounds pretty nightmarish <laughs> as it is. But I mean, I listened to uh, and the other the other album was Slade in Flame. And because yeah. I spent 47 years calling it Slade in Flame, I'm sticking with it. Quite right too, yeah. Yeah. It kind of needed to have an S on it. That would have been a much more exciting title. Slade in Flames. Maybe, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it would have been it would have been nicely symmetrical. Yeah. Especially given uh, Slade's propensity for turning the S around. Mm. Although this was around the time when the Towering Inferno came out, so maybe it would have given people a very different impression of how the band was starting their film career. Well... I like I like the twists and turns behind this because the the idea originally wasn't to have the story that we've got, which is about the rise and fall of a of a rock band. Yeah. Um, the band immediately dismissed the idea of doing a Beatles style Hard Day's Night kind of thing. Yes, I was going to say, when we say it's the rise and fall of a rock band, it's not the Slade story, is it? It's a no. thoroughly fictional outfit. It is. Um, but I would have preferred the second idea. Yes. Oh, yeah. You'll like this. Quite a mess. Quite a mess. Yes. A comedy reworking of the Quatermass experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Where, where Dave Hill is the experiment, <laughs> only to be killed off by a triffid thing in the first quarter of an hour. <laughs> well, it sounds like Dave Hill got a better deal out of this because he is cast as the sort of ladies' man of flame here. <laughs> which, I mean, he seems like a lovely bloke, Dave Hill, but I did not buy that. No. I, it's, it's an interesting film. It has to be said. I suppose. It is. I suppose for our viewers, uh, listeners, even podcast, it's like radio, isn't it? It's yeah. Well, one day you'll get used to the idea of people listening to recorded speech, but that day is not today. So, on our wireless program today, <laughs> <laughs> which which will be available shortly after the Archers. Um, I'm going to let you synopsize it. You do it so well. 
Well, mainly because you're so practised. Maybe, yes, yeah. But it's a fairly straightforward film, isn't it? They're it is. Flame. They're a, a group on the... Uh, actually, no, they're not initially Flame. Oh, right. Well, that's a bit no, they're vague. Playing two, they're playing in two bands at the start, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, it's a bit vague as to what they're called originally. One of them is called the Undertakers, who were like a kind of... if. If Screaming Lord Such was a full band yeah. kind of thing, they're the kind of campy horror rock thing, and their uh, <laughs> their career ends in ignominy. Where that when their front man, played by Noddy Holder, ends up locked in a coffin on stage and can't get out. Which first rate, love that absolutely. Uh, but them and another band cross paths in a police cell after a car accident and they end up being amalgamated into one band by a London-based talent agent called Robert Seymour played by an alarmingly young Tom Conti yes oh Tom Conti I think that every everyone has their own slightly ridiculous posh British actor who makes them go weak at the knees. I know for some people it's Trevor E, for some people it's Nigel Havers, and for me, I'm afraid it's Tom Conti. Even though I know he's a member of the Conservative Party, I think he's lovely. What I what I think is, I like those kind of actors when you see them playing a role. That isn't them. Yeah. You know, Nigel Havers playing a serial killer is something I really want to see. <laughs> now you've mentioned it, yes, so do I. Um, you know, that that whole, the, the effervescent charm, mm. um, the, the easy way of speaking and, and being confident in the fact that everything he says and does is perfectly correct. Yes. When he puts those driving gloves on, oh, you better run. <laughs> In fact, um, why, why not just remake the original Friday the 13th, but with Nigel Havers in the Jason Voorhees role? <laughs> and, and I think Tom Conti in this is fulfilling that role for me. He's, yeah. He's playing a quite Machiavellian character that I'm not used to him playing. He is, yeah. And I mean, he's got sort of quite a good CV in rock movies because, of course, Tom Conti was Mr. Lawrence in Merry Christmas, yes. Mr. Lawrence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is very early in his career. And as you say, he's playing a character that after Shirley Valentine, no one would ever cast him in a role like this again. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, uh, so they're groomed for the top by Seymour, but he crosses paths with another person who has a remarkable history in rock movies. Uh, he crosses paths with their former manager back when there were two bands called Ron Harding, played by Johnny Shannon, uh, who's, he's a guy who, he looks like Colin Robinson from What We Do in the Shadows, Mm -hmm. uh, but he's a substantially menacing guy. And do you know what his first screen credit as an actor was? Performance, I believe. It was, yes. Yeah. And it, 
dotted throughout this film, and and uh, Johnny Shannon is one of them. Mm. He's one of those actors who, the minute he turns up on stage, you know, he's a wrong <laughs> You really do, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Minute he owns his Cockney Northern sir. He's a wrong So there's several things about this that are very different to what you would imagine a Slade movie as being like. Yeah, well, I think I think this is the thing. Typically, in um, the so in the kind of films where the films were there as a vehicle for a band. Mm. Generally speaking, the film reflected the personalities of the band. Yeah. Um, so the Beatles were doing little knockabout movies with a bit as with a high propensity for slapstick and farce. And uh, the the monkeys did their film that was very similar but with much more LSD. Um, <laughs> yes. And then you sort of think about what came later, things like Bowie being involved in things like The Man Who Fell to Earth. That, again, it, it fits in with his all outsider persona. Definitely, um, yeah. But Slade, you'd expect to be doing something like a comedy version of the Quatermass Experiment. You'd expect something almost Goody-esque because they were... Jokers on stage, they dressed flamboyantly, they acted flamboyantly, they always had a glint in their eye when they were performing, they were always winking to the crowd, grinning from ear to ear. Yeah, they were a band who had a good time. And it's worth noting, isn't it, that their version of dressing flamboyantly was different to how the other bands would dress flamboyantly. Slade were always a bit more clownish about it yeah i think when when you've got a lead singer whose voice is as loud and as bassy as noddy holder there's no point trying to go for sexual ambiguity <laughs> isn't there you know, he sounds like a foghorn he's got massive mutton chops you, you, you're not you going to be able to do the sort of pretty boy mark ball and thing it, with it's him. difficult to do androgyny with mutton chops like that isn't it yes <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that old Michael Stipe line. I think it was Michael Stipe who said this, that um, glam rock bands generally ended up being three brickies and one pretty boy, yeah. apart from Mud, who were four brickies. Yeah. And Slade were definitely towards the bricky end of the glam rock continuum. But, uh, but I think... I think that... The reason for that is that Slade are much more rock mm. with the dressings of glam yeah. than they yeah. are. And, and, you know, we we kind of touched on this a little bit when we were uh, talking about the Susie Q film. Mm. Um, glam rock was very much split into two. There were the bands who were bands who used glam as a sort of vehicle to just sell records. Mm. because it was the zeitgeist of the time and it worked for them. Yeah. Um, and then you had the ones who were the manufactured one, the sort of proto-stockache in Waterman Hit Factory that were all produced by Chinny Chap and, yes. and just churned yeah. out the same song with the lyrics kind of rearranged. Yeah. Um, 
And so Susie Quattro, I feel, was was in the the first group, the the ones that were actual artists that rode on the back of Glam. Yeah. Um, Slade were another uh, Smokey from Bradford, although they were a little bit later down the line. Mm. They were similar um, artists that that used the the music of the time uh, to further their careers. But this film is not what you'd expect. No, the, well, no. the opening scenes are. Yeah, yeah. Because the pranks that the bands are playing on each other are a little bit. You can imagine Slade doing that, can't you? Yeah, yeah. they're the, the, the good-natured prankery that you'd expect. Although that said, the two bands that they're in, um, the the wedding band that is led by Alan Lake. Yeah. Um, as Jack Daniels. <laughs> yes. Um, that's, that's, you'd think that they'd be moving in completely different circles to a band like The Undertakers. You know, yeah. even if they were on the same bill, if, if, if you went to a festival to see them, they wouldn't be on the same stage even. But I wonder if part of that is the the 60s thing where rock in the 60s is enough of a weird new thing that it hasn't really splintered into thousands of different target markets yet. You know, you look at festival lineups back in the 60s, you look at even probably you look at some that jazz. Have you seen that film Jazz on a Summer's Day? No. It's about some jazz, right? And it's on a summer's day. Um, All right. But, well, they masked but, that well. But that is fascinating because that is a, a late 50s jazz festival. And not only do they have like wildly different types of jazz there, you know, they have the sort of quite warm mainstream type represented by Louis Armstrong and the more intellectual type represented by Thelonious Monk. Mm. But they've also got Chuck Berry in the middle of it, who's about (laughs) as jazz as the prodigy. But, you know, where else are you going to play? It's a music festival for those young people and their modern music. It's all music. It all derives from the conch and the stick. Rhythm and melody. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but un- unironically, yes, yeah. you look at festival lineups back then and they now seem like insanely <coughs> eclectic because there just wasn't a sense of ta- how to target these things to different subsectors. Yeah, but my, my point is more like The Undertakers felt like the kind of band that played gigs in the evening. Yeah. And the the Jack Daniels band were the kind of book, uh, band that you booked for your wedding on a Saturday afternoon under a marquee, as was portrayed in the opening shot. Yes, yeah, um, I think that's fair. Although I would absolutely hire the Undertakers to play my wedding. Yes, yeah. but I probably wouldn't have a top hat and tail do <laughs> if I was hiring a band like the Undertakers. But yeah, so it. I, I I found the first half of the movie is a bit vignette-y. Yeah. Until, yeah. until they sign with um, Seymour, mm. um, it seems to be little snippets. And it, it takes a while for it to settle down and you don't really understand. Because 
you see all of Slade back in Jack mm. Daniels, and then you see Noddy Holder in a completely different band, and they seem to all be having a war with each other, and it doesn't really make any sense for quite a while if you're familiar with Slade. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, if this was just a movie about a rock band with a cast of actors, I wouldn't find the opening confusing at all. But when you're cutting between a band with most of Slade in and a band with Noddy Holder in, yeah. if that is really jolting if you know who Slade are, which you'd have to assume is the, the target audience of the Slade movie. Yeah, and... Um... So it, it was a little bit choppy there, and I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll hold on. Uh, what, wh- wh- why, why a Slade locking Noddy in a coffin? Yes. What, yeah. Why is that happening? Um, just as a side note, there's a lot of links to modern comedy lo- legends during this coverage, because I can't help notice that in the particular video setup I've chosen. Mm. We bear an uncanny resemblance to Vic Reeves's uh, Otis Redding character <laughs> that's just yeah. sitting on the dock of the beer. And on- go in and go out. <laughs> and also, of course, Vic and Bob, his, his comedy cohort, did bring back to life the memory of Slade in their series of... Uh, comedy vignettes at home with Slade. Which, I mean, all due respect to Slade in Flame, I think is the definitive dramatic portrayal of Slade. Yeah, because I spent the whole of this movie expecting Dave Hill as Barry to demand cup of soup. (laughs) But no, the closest he got was battering on about a can of Coke, a bottle of Coke. Yes. Yeah. Which unusually for a rock movie from 74, 75, was actually the drink. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I did keep thinking about Slade in Flame as well, which I suppose, I suppose maybe Slade in Flame is slightly inspired by this, that they went to see this film that has Slade, this big cartoon of a rock band. Yeah in a sort of down-to-earth domestic setting. And they thought, oh, yeah, that's quite funny. We could get some sketches out of that. Yeah. And that, and that is the thing, actually, that because it would have been easy. I mean, Slade, Slade were huge when, when mm-hmm. Flame first got um, put out as an idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were only into their second Christmas by that point. Now... When which Christmas was it when they s- soundtracked Christmas Forever? 73, I think. And was that their second or first Christmas? So, well, the film, uh, the, the soundtrack album came out in 74, but the film, I believe, got released in 75. Right. So they're into their second Christmas by this point. Okay, so they they released that Christmas single pretty quick out of the gate, didn't they? Mm. That's impressive. That's a band who know what they want, who achieve absolute immortality in a very short space of time. I'm now going to just double-check my facts. <laughs> I, 
think it's fine. I think I'm I'm happy having the facts and mixed hazy memories of his childhood running in parallel for a bit here. But yes, we probably should check that. Yeah. Oh, memory man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nineteen seventy-three. Fabulous. And it remained in the charts until February 1974. Nine whole weeks for a Christmas hit. That's impressive, because you've, you've got to imagine most Christmas hits plummet from the charts pretty soon after Boxing well, Day. Yeah, yeah. Well, mainly because the shops are shut. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. were then. <laughs> they were then, yeah. The everything store never closes. Yeah. But okay. yeah. So um so yeah, it did it did remind me of Vic and Bob a bit. It also reminded me a few junctures of this is spinal tap. I mean, the yeah. stuff with Noddy Holder getting stuck in the coffin is immensely spinal yeah. tap. Yeah, and um the over-the-top nature of how those simple pranks end up in what could have been a very fatal car accident. <laughs> Yes, or a bizarre gardening accident. Yeah, and, and and then and I think this is because it's it's one part rock movie, one part slapstick comedy, yeah, one part kitchen sink drama, yes, one part gritty seventies gangster thing. I mean, Jack Daniels does not meet a pleasant end. Mm, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite odd, although when I was watching it, I was thinking about a lot of other rock films that were around in the early to mid-70s, particularly British ones. And you think of things like, I mean, performance is its own thing, I guess, but yeah. you think of things like That'll Be The Day, the David Essex movie, which we covered uh, early this year, you look at things like that and um, you, you just think it's very strange to me looking back. Looking back, I find that the 70s were this unparalleled time of musical innovation where basically every genre that came about after the 60s happened in the 70s. Yeah. And yet, when you look back at the films about rock music that they were making then, there are all these very backwards-looking nostalgia pieces about how the rock industry is actually pretty crap, which is yeah. odd. Yeah. But I get... I guess no-one's actually... I've never heard anyone in the pop-stroke rock industry ever say that they enjoy the process of getting rich and famous. Yeah. A yeah. lot of them enjoy the trappings. Yes. And in some cases, you know, Mr Moon, notwithstanding, um, you know, maybe enjoy the trappings a little too much. Yes. But, yeah. It's been known. Yes. But you never, you never hear anybody saying, oh, do you know, I missed those 18 months trapped in an airless studio, thrashing out the 47th different take of the <laughs> intro to the track one filler instrumental. 
You never hear him say that, do you? <laughs> no, no. But these films are so damn healing. You can only really see it as, as a kind of reflection of not the mood of British rock music, which could be tremendously buoyant. You've got bands like, well, like like Slade yeah. going around. <laughs> um, but they are redolent of the mood in Britain in a lot of other areas. I think these films, yeah. for all that they are often set in the 50s or 60s, this is three-day week cinema, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. It is. And um, the, the thing is, I know uh, Noddy Holder in, in interviews in the past has, has, seen this as, has seen this film as the beginning of the end. Hmm. for Slade in their first incarnation they had a, a brief resurgence in the in the mid 80s it was not good that was more glam oh, right. than rock yeah um, my oh my radio wall of sound wasn't bad but um, oh, wow I don't, today I learned that radio wall of sound was a Slade song I can you remember it playing on the radio when I was growing up, but I never... I, I... Radio Wall of Sound, 24 hours of power. Indeed, yes, yeah, coming up from my tower, yeah. which is uh, quite phallic now I've said it out loud, but yeah, those are the lyrics. <laughs> oh, I'm going to double check now. <laughs> I think you are more likely to remember this accurately than me in this case, considering I was like, learning how to shit in a toilet yes! of course it was yeah <laughs> and it was from 1991 oh blimey much later than i thought then. yeah i, I thought it was about 86 87 but they, they'd yeah. had a string of sort of mediocre hits like my oh my and it was like it was like slade kiora it had been yeah. diluted yeah but that's that that's like part of what I adore about the rockier end of the the glam rock boom. Part of what I love about Slade and Susie Quattro and Mud and the Sweet is they have that astonishing kind of shrill sheet metal production that just makes everything sound bigger and noisier than it can possibly be. And by the 80s, fashion had shifted more into a kind of sound which is shit. Yeah. Oh, actually, Radio Wall of Sound was the third comeback. Or the third... What's it? The third coming. Yeah. Uh, so the one... Um, the one that I referenced, My Oh My, and Run Runaway were from 83, 84. Right, yes, no memory of that at all. Oh, um, I do remember Radio Wall of Sound. Run Runaway is, if you imagine Noddy Holder fronting a band that's singing things that feel a bit like Jay Gal's centerfold, I'm imagining it, and I don't want to. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was not a good comeback. Maybe that's why they left it eight years to do the next one. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can, I can sort of imagine this being the beginning of the end because it did not do well 
commercially as a film it is well, I, I think the reason is um obviously as a as a rock band in the charts they were appealing to those young people yes um those young people like product they like to be able to go out and buy three singles and an album every year from their favorite artist mm. when that artist is spending two years making a movie that's six singles and two albums they've missed out on. This is entirely true when it's one of the classic curses of the pop movie. It, it is amazing that there are enough of these to fill a podcast, considering <laughs> the sort of Faustian <laughs> bargain where you have to send a pop band away for so long that people, that their career just loses its heat and you have to try and make a film quickly enough to capitalise on the success of a pop band despite the fact that films can't be made that quickly. It's the stupidest business model in existence but people keep doing it. And yet then you get something like Absolute Beginners which we've covered mm. where you didn't have to take the bands away from the public eye because they weren't actually in it, in it. Yeah. And it still flopped. Yeah, there is that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not a guarantee of success well, the, coming up. But the artist survived yes, in the yeah. main. Just about, yes. Yeah, I think Boy's career definitely survived the 1980s, although we're all kind of wondering how. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, but you, you were saying about the technical innovation. Now, there's there's a concert scene at the end of Flame mm. where they appear to have footage back projected onto their suits. Yes. Now, the earliest instance of that I was previously aware of was the magnificently over-the-top sci-fi epic that was Nick Kershaw's Wouldn't It Be Good video from 1984. <laughs> and they, they went on and on about how costly the suits were for that video. Yeah. I bet, and I mean this in the best way, this does not look like a big budget film, you know? No. So I, I think they managed to find a way to do that on the cheap. Yeah. I think it's it's cheap in a good way. I think it has some of the most beautiful shots of terraced houses in all of British cinema. It, it is. It, and that, that's what I like. I think it, it's a... Although it feels a bit like a, a hodgepodge of a movie, I think there's a, something in there to appeal to the aficionado of every potential British film genre there is. Yes, yeah. You know, if you if you like your kitchen sink dramas, it's there. Um, yeah. Uh, if you like uh, your rock musicals, it's there. Yeah. If you like your gangster movies. It's if you there. like your Kiss style, here's a here's a man in love with his pigeons storyline. Yes. <laughs> yes, Naughty Holder breeds pigeons in this, which is lovely. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's odd, yeah, and it. I mean, I do think it has serious flaws. I was trying to work it out, and I think one of the problems is, is that it, it does want to show, and it is trying to show, the rock bands are ultimately just puppets of their managers. But what mm. that means is that as the film goes on, for all there's still a lot of Slade on screen, 
they are not doing any of the things that drive the story forward. No, they're, they're kind of, they're almost scenery. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I guess in a way is, is kind of the point that it's making. I think it's deliberate, but it, it is, it's in that sort of uncomfortable zone where you think much as I'm enjoying watching Slade, they're here because some executive has watched this and realised there isn't enough footage of them in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's fair to say that Slade themselves have varying levels of acting talent. Yes. Noddy, who, who obviously went on to, to have quite a reasonable acting career in things like the Grimleys and stuff like that. Yes, yeah. Um, is, is, is good. I mean, yeah. he is playing Noddy Holder, so he's had years of practice. But he could, you can imagine... Well, he's not, is he? He's playing Jim Stoker. He is, yes. Yeah, but... but you can imagine that if Slade's multiple comebacks had never happened, he could have a pretty good career as a sort of... Brian Blessed, Tom Baker, kind of weirdo character actor with a booming voice. He yeah. would have been good at that. Yeah. Um, Dave Hill. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Didn't have I don't the best know. of material. <laughs> Me- well, maybe it, it might be with Dave Hill that I just cannot see him without wondering what is up with that haircut. Um. Jim Lee was pretty good as Paul. Yeah, yeah. The tortured genius of the group. The one who, we were saying that this has a spinal tap influence, but there is a bit where he is playing this ballad on a piano and Noddy is just absolutely bewildered, saying that's not their sound at all. And I thought, I just want him to say it's called Lick My Love Pump. That's all I'm asking (laughs) for. I was half expecting Noddy at that point. At what point are we going to turn it up to 11? Yes. Um, uh, but my favourite member of Slade in this is uh, Don Powell as mm. Charlie the drummer. Because yes. not only is he a prototype for Mickey in League of Gentlemen. <laughs> I mean, he even looks like him. Yeah. And some of his lines are delivered in exactly the same way. But (laughs) he's also got an absolute mastery of deadpan humour. Yes, yeah. His timing is superb. The scene on the train with the tablecloth. I suppose his timing should be superb. I mean, he's a drummer. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, and it is his story to a large extent. It is, isn't yeah. It? It's structured around him more yeah. than it is anyone else. Because he he's got he's sort of the latecomer, isn't it? He isn't in either group at the beginning mm. and uh, auditions because he's got his own kit. He gets the job. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice detail, isn't it? I think yeah. anyone who's ever been in a band as a teenager can. Identify with that painstaking <laughs> selection process. <laughs> well, he was very good, yeah, but he's got his own kit. <laughs> <laughs> but 
That's yes. where I went wrong. I didn't have to learn to play the guitar. I just had to own one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, this has been talked about a bit because uh, as we record and probably knowing how they like to thrash out their correspondence, by the time this is released, this will still be happening. Uh, but the Radio 5 film show has been having some correspondence about the best movies about drummers. And Mark Kermode, who has gone on record as saying this is the Citizen Kane of rock musicals, <laughs> uh, is always saying it's Slade in Flame. Slade in Flame is a movie about drummers. See, even Mark Kermode calls it Slade in Flame. He does, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so I win now. The Citizen Kane of rock musicals. Oh, sounds like someone hasn't seen Nostalgia Critics The Wall yet. <laughs> I mean, clearly, Kamod hasn't seen Absolute Beginners. <laughs> so some interesting maybe people... Is. Maybe he has. Some interesting people behind the scenes here, though, isn't there? Hmm. Uh, Richard Long Crane is the director who, I mean, he's one of those British journeymen who's done a lot of different things, but my favourite film he's done will always be uh, the Ian McCallan version of Richard III. Yes. Which lots I of killings. Lots of killings from Richard III. Yeah. Um, which I previously thought was basically a perfect film, although it could have been livened up with a bit of Noddy Holder in it. <laughs> well, actually, let's have a look at uh, Mr Longcrane's career and see yes, which of these yes. would be livened up by a bit of the old Noddy. <laughs> which right. of these most needs Noddy? Yes, good, good. The missionary. Yeah, that, that could do with some Noddy, yeah. Brimstone and Treacle. Oh, well, he he got stinging for that, but I think we all know the rock star who should have been. Is, is that because Noddy devil. wasn't available? Must have been, yeah. <laughs> Just imagining him spotting that couple's disabled daughter going, baby, baby, baby! Uh, 2004's Wimbledon. Oh, Gosh, that needed something, didn't it? Like anything to wake you up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, Noddy Holder wouldn't have ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's being slightly unfair. Wimbledon is a movie about tennis, and there is nothing you can do with a movie about tennis. It's going to be bad because the sport is bad. Yeah. Noddy Holder could have played against a man with equal mutton chops and they could have used those instead of rackets. <laughs> I would like to see a Noddy Holder versus John McEnroe match. <laughs> I think that could be... I mean, you'd have to wear it, your defenders, but still. And, and Longcrane's TV work. Noddy Holder in Band of Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's one for Dave Hill, because that's why he's got that haircut. They put a helmet on him and just clipped around with him. <sighs> it's not a bad CV, is it? It's I not. Mean, apart from Wimbledon, obviously. Hey, we've all got our Wimbledon. That's either deep or 
incomprehensible and I don't know which it is. I like to think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Yes, fine. Uh, yeah, so he said the writer is Andrew Birkin, who has had an absolutely fascinating career. Like before he became a writer, he was the runner on 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he was the Beatles assistant director on Magical Mystery Tour, a job which I suspect involved a lot of assisting. <laughs> so, I mean, that's fascinating. He is Jane Birkin's sister. Sorry? He's Jane Birkin. He's uh, Yeah, that... I, it was only when I saw your confused look that I realised I had mixed my genders up again. But, you know, I, th I thought we'd gone down a Wachowski route there. It's, it's quite now. I, I like to think I'm being quite it, it, progressive. It's on trend. I'm, I'm gender blind. Um, <laughs> yes, he, he is Jane Birkin's brother, uh, which means that his niece is Charlotte Gainsbourg. Right, yeah. Yeah. Wow. He also co-wrote Luke Besson's The Messenger, story of Joan of Arc. Indeed. Now, would that benefit from a bit of Noddy? Oh, yeah. Noddy Calder is the voice of God. Come on. <laughs> How has it not happened yet? It's Chris! <laughs> picturing that coming from the star as the three wise men follow it. <laughs> oh. It's great because every single film about religion uh, always struggles to, to visualise God. You know, how do you do it? But there you well, go, you've done it. I'm looking here. There's, there's some films on here that will benefit Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Definitely needs Noddy, yeah. yeah. Name of the Rose. <laughs> yes. And Perfume, The Story of a Murderer. Mm, yes, yeah. I'm just thinking, where would, where, where would Noddy Holder fit in the name of the Rose? I know Father Borges is blind, but he's going to be deaf as well by the end <laughs> of this. Uh, Peter Pan. Can you imagine Noddy Holder as Captain Hook? <laughs> Noddy Holder as Tinkerbell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very easy to joke about this, but part of Noddy Holder's longevity as a cultural figure is he will just turn up in the most unexpected places, won't he? And, and do a job. That's the important yeah. thing. Yeah. What's your favourite random noddiness? What's your favourite wow. unexpected noddy in culture? I, I, I'm just I'm just having a look through some of the other work he's done. Mm. And I, I like the fact that he turned down ACDC after yeah. the death of John uh, bon Scott. Bon Scott. Uh, because his loyalty was to Slade. Wow. Um, but... I like the fact that he did a, a tour to celebrate a 50th anniversary of him. 
<laughs> or the birthdays we know them outside no, 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 the no, showbiz. No, 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 it, it was the 50th anniversary of him as a showbiz. Person. Oh, right, okay. It was his 50th anniversary in showbiz. Uh, and that was in 2013 with Mark Radcliffe. Well, I was going to say, I'm glad you said that, because my favourite random noddy memory is when he used to turn up on Mark Radcliffe's uh, Radio 2 show, back when he had like an evening, uh, well, a nighttime, I guess, Radio 2 show, and he used to do the TV reviews. And I don't know what sort of contortions your mind has to go through to get to a point where Noddy Holder's TV reviews sounds like a logical plan. But yeah, it was pretty entertaining, actually. Well, I, 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 think, uh, I think there must have been quite a bit of uh, wacky-backy being imbibed at the BBC because in 2015 he appeared as a presenter of BBC's Songs of Praise. No way! <laughs> Finally, an edition of Songs of Praise where you can make out some of the words. <laughs> uh, uh, what? Oh, there's some, there's some good random facts. Mm. Have I got news for you? That makes sense, yes. I like the fact that he's the Nobby's Nut mascot. Y yeah, those adverts are very disturbing, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> because they, they seem to involve... Uh, uh, people going into a pub spotting Noddy Holder making a beeline for his groin due to a confusion between the name of a brand of peanuts <laughs> and the testicles of your actual Noddy Holder. Right. I think this is my favourite Noddy fact, but, and, and, and our listeners won't appreciate this, but I'm going to paste this into the chat just so that I can enjoy visually your reaction. Okay, okay. It's good. It's experimental. It's making me look for where the chat is. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> it's exactly what I was expecting. I now want to go to the Walsall New Art Gallery. <laughs> Not to look at the art, just to get in the lift. Just to ride up and down in the lift, listening to Noddy Holder telling you to stand clear of the it's doors. <laughs> That's amazing. Impressionists! <laughs> One of my favourite bad lines in all of cinema, which is even more delectable because it comes in a film some people inexplicably think is good is in Terence Davies's very mangled adaptation of Terence Rattigan's play The Deep Blue Sea mm -hmm. where Rachel Weiss and Tom Hiddleston are having an argument in an art gallery and Hiddleston storms off but before he does he turns around and says with genuine venom I'll be in the Impressionists <laughs> And in, in any other director's work, I'd think it was a punchline, but Terence Davies is the most humorless man who's ever lived, so... I, I'm also intrigued. I may have to... After the, after the show, I may have to Google the 31 episodes of 
his quiz show, his television quiz show, oh. Noddy's Electric Ladyland. Blimey. I mean, so many questions raised by that title alone. Indeed. I, I am Google it. I, I'm not going to say that phrase. I started to say that phrase. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I'm Googling Noddy's Electric Ladyland. <laughs> Oh dear, I have been put on a watch list. Uh, oh, thank God for firewalls. Um. But yes, before we before we start watching all before I fall down that rabbit hole <laughs> of Noddy's Electric Ladyland, um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close off? Uh, no, only that if if any of our listeners haven't watched Slade in Flame, mm -hmm. why not? You've had 40, 46 years to do so. <laughs> yes. I'll I'll grant you if you're not yet forty six, then probably not. But I have no idea what the demographic for our listenership is. Me neither, and I've done this thing. Excellent. But if you are listening for whatever reason, uh, you'll be pleased to know that we'll be back in the new year with a whole list of art major artists who we've never featured before, including Prince. We're doing episodes on Daft Punk, Kate Bush, uh, just Barbara Streisand. There's a Barbara Streisand episode, which I wasn't expecting either. Frank Sinatra, The Pokes. It's going to be great. 2022 is going to be a fine year for pop screen. Do you know my favourite fact about Barbara Streisand? Go on. She has a shopping mall in her house. <laughs> See, that takes a bit of the fun out of shopping, doesn't it? Where you have to buy the stuff oh, to it's put not for in her. your house. It's not for her. Oh. It's for her visitors. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that, that makes sense. will take them shopping in her shopping mall. Which is great, because they go visit her, mm. buy presents for their friends, she gets the money. Genius. That's, that's good business. Yeah. But yeah, if you want to hear stuff like that, listeners... <laughs> 2022 is going to be your year and it's going to be our year but for now thank you for supporting pop screen throughout 2021 god knows we've all needed some support throughout this year uh, but that is your lot merry christmas i've been graham and i've been mick and we'll see you next year